Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Today in our feature, Beth Edwards from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about Youth Climate Change Action Day. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. As we reported before, for the last several years, the tiny rural town of Dale in southwestern Indiana has been fighting off a proposed coal-to-diesel refinery to be built on 512 acres of farmland on the edge of town. Two grassroots citizens' organizations, Southwestern Indiana Citizens for Quality of Life and Valley Watch, have been leading the fight. In early 2018, Riverview Energy, an out-of-state company, announced plans to build a $2.5 billion coal-to-diesel refinery. It would be the first direct coal hydrogenation project in the U.S. The plant would use 1.6 million tons of coal annually to produce 4.8 million barrels of diesel fuel and naphtha. In October 2018, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, or IDEM, issued Riverview Energy a draft air permit for the project and concluded erroneously that, quote, no significant impacts are expected from the proposed facility, end quote. IDEM exceeded its own cancer risk threshold and issued the permit anyway. Southwestern citizens and Valley Watch are concerned about the dangerous air pollution from the plant. The most important step the two organizations took in 2019 was to challenge Riverview Energy and IDEM by appealing Riverview's air quality permit. As part of the appeal, eight local residents submitted affidavits on how they believe the proposed refinery would affect their quality of life, health, and tourism. The residents defended their affidavits in sworn depositions. Since then, the judge in the case has granted Southwestern Indiana Citizens and Valley Watch legal standing in the case. According to Mary Hess, Southwestern Citizens organizer, quote, this means that the judge feels we have proof that we will be aggrieved or personally affected by the refinery, and it's the first step in moving this case forward, end quote. In a press release announcing the appeal, Earth Justice Attorney Lauren Pyatt, representing the two groups, said the permit is, quote, deeply flawed, end quote. She went on to say, quote, Riverview Energy must not be allowed to cite this dangerous project near vulnerable communities, including an elementary school and nursing home, end quote. On January 31st, the State Office of Environmental Adjudication, with which the citizens filed their appeal, ruled in the citizens' favor with regard to IDEM's failure to provide for public participation, count one of the citizens' appeal. 
the office found that IDEM failed to provide the citizens in a timely fashion with, quote, relevant and significant information, end quote, about the refinery that was in its possession as required by law. The court date is June 29th. The Environmental Working Group has reported on a proposal before the Indiana legislature. It shows that humor is not dead. The coal industry is pushing a bill in the Indiana legislature to make it harder for utilities to close dirty, money-losing coal plants. But if the state's going to prop up outdated, unsustainable energy sources, why stop there? So the Democratic State Representative Ryan Dvorak offered an amendment. Quote, whereas whale oil provides bright, dependable light that is favored even by lighthouse keepers, and many American jobs have been lost in the decimation of the whale oil industry, a public utility may not sell electricity for the purpose of providing power to harsh, flickering, and toxic light bulbs when natural and reliable whale oil would serve the purpose of lighting Hoosier homes and businesses, end quote. Quote, how about legislation to replace every car in Indiana with a horse and buggy, end quote. Ask environmentalist working group president Ken Cook and his tongue firmly in cheek as Dvorak's. House Bill 1414, introduced by Republican State Representative Ed Soliday, is, quote, one of the dumbest policy proposals ever, end quote, said Cook. Quote, it would be a disaster for the environment, public health, and Indiana's economy, end quote. Soliday's bill is opposed by all five of Indiana's investor-owned utilities, the Chamber of Commerce, consumer and environmental groups, the Indiana Conservative Alliance for Energy, and ratepayers across the state. Feral hogs, also known as wild pigs, wild boars, and many other names, are an invasive species that cause an estimated over $1 billion in damages to agriculture and natural resources every year in the U.S. Wild pigs are found in 39 states. Texas has the most feral hogs with an estimated 2 million. In Indiana, feral hogs have been documented in three southern counties. Wherever they're found, wild pigs cause extensive disturbance to agriculture, landscaping, livestock, local habitats, and native species. In addition, they carry a number of diseases like brucellosis that can be transferred to livestock or other domesticated animals. Some experts guess that Indiana has a scattered population of about 1,000 wild hogs, but that number could change quickly. With the ability to produce two litters a year and an average of four to six piglets per litter, one sow and her offspring can easily grow into 1,000 over 10 years. The average life expectancy under good conditions in a wild hog population is about four to five years. However, they may live up to eight years. As year-round temperatures rise, we should expect the feral hogs to gradually move into more Indiana counties. They could be common in our area within a decade. If you see a wild hog, contact the Indiana Department of Fish and Wildlife. The Environmental Protection Agency has reapproved a chemical used in Bayer's Roundup weed killer despite concerns over its health risks. The agency claims that the chemical glyphosate doesn't pose a danger to humans despite thousands of lawsuits that attribute cancer to Roundup. In an EPA review, the agency found there was insufficient evidence to conclude that glyphosate plays a role in any human diseases. 
The agency did find that glyphosate presented, quote, low or limited potential risk, end quote, in birds and mammals. The EPA's results differ from other research, such as a World Health Organization report in 2015 that found that glyphosate is probably carcinogenic to humans. Quote, the Trump's EPA assertion that glyphosate poses no risks to human health disregards independent science findings in favor of confidential industry research and industry profits, end quote, said Laurieanne Bird, the Center for Biological Diversity's Director of Environmental Health. Quote, this administration's troubling allegiance to Bayer, Monsanto, and the pesticide industry doesn't change the trove of peer-reviewed research by leading scientists finding troubling links between glyphosate and cancer. End quote. More than 42,000 plaintiffs claim Roundup causes a type of cancer called non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Bayer, to date, has lost three U.S. jury trials in the Roundup litigation. A fourth court case has been delayed pending a settlement agreement. The company is appealing the decision, saying Roundup and its active ingredient, glyphosate, are not carcinogenic and safe for human use. Numbers of 8 to $10 billion have been floated for weeks by litigation sources as a potential settlement total for the mass of cases that has dogged Bear ever since it bought Monsanto. The company's share prices have been sharply depressed by repeated trial losses and large jury awards against the company in the three trials held to date. According to the New York Times, the Trump administration moved to drop the threat of punishment to oil and gas companies, construction crews, and other organizations that kill birds incidentally, arguing that businesses that accidentally kill birds ought to be able to operate without fear of prosecution. Conservation groups said the proposed new regulation from the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, which operates under the Department of Interior, would substantially weaken the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 and put millions of birds in danger. The threat of fines and prosecution has helped prod industries for decades to take steps to protect birds, like affixing red lights on communication towers, they say. But industry leaders and administration officials said they expected businesses to continue to voluntarily protect bird habitats. Removing the threat of punishment, they said, would bring regulatory certainty and eliminate legal disputes over whether the law covers birds killed unintentionally, whether from an oil spill or the blade of a wind turbine. Aurelia Skipwith, director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, called bird conservation, quote, an integral part, end quote, of the agency's mission. By specifying that entities should be held liable only if they can be proven to have set out to kill birds, she said, quote, we are taking action today to make sure our rules and regulations are clear, end quote. Thus, the bar is not set very high. The Trump interpretation has already had an impact on migratory birds. According to internal agency documents recently obtained by the New York Times, the Trump administration has discouraged local governments and businesses from taking simple precautionary measures to protect birds, and federal wildlife officials have all but stopped investigating most bird deaths. Along with their allies in Congress, the fracking industry wants to build the Appalachia Storage and Trading Hub, a massive complex in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia that would turn fracked gas into plastics to the detriment of local communities and the global climate. The industry wants to use taxpayers' money to do this. 
The latest plan is to include funding for this project in the Federal Highway Funding Bill, which is about to be introduced into the House of Representatives. The Appalachia Storage and Trading Hub is a key part of the fracking industry's plan to continue drilling and lock the nation into decades of gas and plastics. If built, the project would include over 1,100 miles of new pipelines. A few senators, both Democrats and Republicans, want the federal government to provide funds for the project, and last year they passed a highway bill that did just that. Citizen pressure stopped any taxpayer funds from being used for the gas storage hub last year. However, the fossil fuel industry is up to its old tricks again. The current highway bill is the next phase of this fight. U.S. Senators are about to vote on the Scientific Assistance for Very Endangered Right Whales Act, known as the Save Right Whales Act. Right whales are one of the most endangered species of whales and live in the North Atlantic Ocean. The Save Right Whales Act would protect the whales by establishing a grant program to promote collaboration between states, non-governmental organizations, and members of the fishing and shipping industries to reduce human impacts on the whales and promote the population's recovery. Right whales are gigantic, but very graceful and have strong family bonds. They are one of the Earth's largest mammals. Last year, the small right whale population dwindled at 10 times the sustainable rate. The whales are struck by ships and suffer lacerations to their skin and skulls and become entangled in fishing lines causing infections and extended painful deaths. The Save the Right Whales bill has passed out of committee into the Senate but has yet to receive a full floor vote. Spring is just around the corner and it appears it might come early this year. It's time to prepare for bee season. One of the early bees to be busy is the bumblebee, which is under duress. They need our help to survive. The rusty-patched bumblebee has declined by 87% in the last 20 years. The species is likely to be present in only one-tenth of a percent of its historical range. There are many potential reasons for the decline, including habitat loss, intensive farming, disease, pesticide use, and climate change. With the odds seemingly stacked against the rusty patched bumblebee, there is a role for everyone in conserving this beneficial pollinator. Your actions will also help a host of other bees, butterflies, birds, and birds that share resources with the rusty patched bumblebee. If you have a flower garden, here are some recommendations for it. Bumblebees cannot distinguish red flower. They prefer purple or yellow. What they like best includes lilacs, lavender, wisteria, sunflowers, poppies, black-eyed Susans, and honeysuckle. And now, for our feature, we will hear Beth Edwards from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about Youth Climate Change Action Day. The science is clear. Indiana is getting hotter and wetter, and it's changing the way we live. The changes to Indiana's weather will bring more pests like ticks and mosquitoes, more air pollution in cities and industrial areas, more catastrophic flooding. And the youth of the state of Indiana want to know if our elected representatives are going to help our climate or hurt it even more. Here's IER's Beth Edwards. The first Youth Climate Change Action Day was held at the Indiana State House on Tuesday to give a voice to the youth climate leaders during this legislative session. 
and an opportunity to speak with lawmakers regarding three bills currently up for vote. The event was hosted by Representative Carrie Hamilton, who has written a House resolution regarding climate change and attended by hundreds of young people across the state. You have inspired me. I was here at the State House back in September on a beautiful fall day when many of you were on the steps of the State House eloquently talking about your climate change concerns, your very real and important concerns about your future. And I said, you know what? It is time. It is time for us to have a conversation in this building with you about moving forward to address climate change. Hamilton has sponsored three bills this legislative session that would address various environmental issues. House Bill 1227 would repeal the supplemental fee to register an electric or hybrid vehicle. House Bill 1228 would restore net metering for renewable energy, eliminating the rollbacks to 2017th Senate Enrollment Act 309. And House Bill 1415 would allow communities to invest in stormwater management systems and reduce flooding. Ethel Riemann, 20, of Porter County, attended the event with Danielle Sipp, 15, of Gary. Both are members of Northwest Indiana's Youth Climate Council and wanted to specifically represent their section of Indiana. We're here to represent our own counties and where we're from, um, just so people get a better understanding of where we're coming from when it comes to environmental. We come from a place of the United States called the Cancer Corner, and that it was very intentionally designed that um, this part of Indiana would receive all of the pollution from a, a lot of different in industries. And so a lot of these uh, issues are impacting our area specifically, and we want to make sure that we're here to say something to our representatives and remind them that we're still here and we are suffering the effects of their decisions. When Whether they do something or not, this is the thing that's going to impact us and our future and future generations as well. Their inaction or inaction has consequence. Hamilton spoke to the crowd of young people, ranging in age from 6 to 18, about the three bills she is sponsoring, as well as a House resolution on the protection and conservation of Indiana's natural resources. As of now, Hamilton has 22 co-sponsors, including one Republican, Mike Aylesworth. The resolution would require the formation of a summer study committee that would recommend policies and solutions on climate change. The bipartisan task force would focus on ways to protect Indiana's agriculture sector, growing clean energy manufacturing in the state, renewable energy, and ways to make communities more resilient. If we decide to do so, we can innovate and invest and build a healthier, stronger, and more resilient Indiana. One of the partners of the event was Earth Charter Indiana. Executive Director Jim Poyser spoke at the event saying, it is tragic that youth are consumed by the climate emergency instead of the more conventional concerns of growing up. For too long we have ignored these young voices, but climate urgency dictates otherwise. Seven cities have passed youth-led climate resolutions. These Indiana successes require the participation of young people with adult allies elected officials, teachers, thank you teachers, scientists, engineers, architects, business and faith leaders, and parents. In the process, we are not only addressing the climate crisis, we are improving our Hoosier civic health. Three youth representatives also address the crowd. Martha Adabi, Vernice Rigo, both of Hamilton Southeastern High School in Fishers, and Cooper Tinsley from Westville High School in Westville, Indiana. 
Each were given a chance to review Hamilton's resolution and offer any notes regarding the legislation before the event. This is Martha Adabi. Now truly is a time to do something, and I know we've heard this time and time again, but it needs to be reiterated because soon we won't have an opportunity to make change. And it won't matter if you or me care when it's too late. And this is Vernice Rigo. It saddens me. It saddens me that adults are looking up at me right now, looking for a reason to pass this resolution, but it should be the other way around. And we need politicians and lawmakers to create a brighter future for tomorrow and shake off the lethargy of the past. Another part of the day focused on how young people can address politicians and lawmakers about their concerns in a more effective way, either through meeting with representatives directly or sending letters. Letter writing examples were given and children were encouraged to write letters while at the State House. Although many of the young people who attended the event can't vote yet, they still want their voices to be heard and their concerns to be addressed as citizens. This is 15-year-old Hamika Agawa, who was present at the event. Yeah, I definitely do think that talking to a representative is important. I think just the fact that you are a younger person who is interested in your own future can make more of an impact on someone who's probably, well, most definitely talk to about issues every day. That's kind of their job, but I feel like it definitely makes more of an impact on their decisions if they actually see minors who are concerned about their future and it makes it, I think, a little bit more urgent in a way because I definitely am concerned and there isn't any reason that they shouldn't be. Tinsley also recommended speaking not only to officials, but to family members. Even though I can't vote, I'm still here today and convincing the people who can vote to really take that stride. And I know I talked to my family when they were even electing our local officials. I talked to my mom and dad and I asked them if I could use their vote, which is something really clever that students can do. People that can't vote can't be afraid to ask their parents and people they know who can vote to use their vote on their behalf, which they did. I mean, we have similar views, so it wasn't that big of a stretch, but they did. The resolution could be tough to get passed in the House and would need three or four caucus leaders to agree to the study for it to move forward. Tinsley says he knows things won't change right away, but he hopes legislators will pass Hamilton's resolution. I hope that that stuff works, and I hope that with that study group, they, they see the major effects that it has on not only youth, but the entire state of Indiana, no matter the age, and I hope that they take further action. The young people who attended also hope their presence and concerns are noted and understood by officials. I just really hope that our representatives realize how important it is for them to truly represent us when it comes to climate and our future and efficiency and I just really hope that they listen. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli. Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. Offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? 
Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults of our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now, for some upcoming local events. The Brown County State Park Winter Hike Series will continue with a hike to the boulder in the tree on Saturday, February 8th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to carpool to the trailhead of Horse Trail A. This is a two-mile round-trip off-trail hike that's a bit rugged, so dress appropriately. Two full-moon owl hikes will take place at the Fairfax State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Sunday, February 9th. One will take place from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. and the other one from 7 to 8 p.m. It is mating season for the owls, which means it is owl calling season. Dress warmly. The Winter Exploration Hike Series at Lake Monroe continues with a hike to Gilmore Ridge on Wednesday, February 12th from 10 a.m. to noon. These are off-trail hikes that are exploratory with no set path. Toilet facilities are not available. Register by February 9th at http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash capital W, capital E, capital H, dash February, F-E-B, 12-20. There will be a winter ID workshop at Spring Mill State Park on Thursday, February 13th from 6 to 8 p.m. Learn how to identify trees by looking at their buds, bark, and more. This is an indoor session in the Lakeview Activity Center. RSVP to 812-278-0139. The Great Backyard Bird Count, a citizen scientist program run by the Audubon Society and Cornell University, runs from Friday, February 14th through Monday, February the 17th. You can participate from home by recording and entering your observations. Contact David Rupp at 812-679-8978 or email him at david at indigobirding.com. On another note, coming up this week is the 100th anniversary of Valentine's Day. Have a happy Valentine's Day to everyone. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. 
Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Beth Edwards. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. David Lyman wrote the script and Linda Green edited it. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is EcoReport. You've been listening to the EcoReport. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. EcoReport is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.